Good evening, everyone. We're picking up in 2 Kings tonight. Specifically, we're going to start off in chapter 4. So go ahead and turn there. quickly get us back in gear as we move back into the narrative of 2 Kings. We're in a time of transition, um, and so part of that transition, which becomes really evident tonight, uh, is the transition from the ministry of the prophet Elijah to the prophet Elisha. And so we'll see tonight uh, a good deal of parallel a good deal of similarities. I think it's appropriate to assume a couple of things about um, this section of scripture, which is chock full of the miraculous. Um, and uh, one of those things, and we'll see this slightly in the text, is we need to remember um, that the mir miracles we read about here are probably not a daily occurrence. You know, we're moving very quickly through an entire life of a prophet, okay? Which means that these miracles are uh, are selected and, and presented to us for a reason. One of the reasons that I would suggest uh, is to put his life and ministry on parallel with Elijah's. Um, the second thing uh, that I want to keep you caught up on is we are still waiting for the end of the house of Omri, or to put it in, in terms that might might ring uh, your memory a bit better, the end of Ahab's line. Okay, Omri was Ahab's father, but Ahab is kind of the high point of um, the northern tribe's worst dynasty. Uh, and so there's been promises made through the ministry of Elijah that that family is going to come to an end. And we finished last week as, uh, as that ending was deferred once again. As we saw, instead of judgment, patience. And actually, it won't be the last time. Even tonight, as we cover four chapters, Lord willing, we still won't get to the end of that story. And so it's helpful to remember that we're looking for that, that we're waiting for that. Uh, the last thing I want to point out to you is, um, as we go through these chapters and we look at the ministry of Elisha, uh, like his predecessor, uh, his life uh, is... Um, on the very edge of the marvelous. Uh, it's really amazing what God does in and through Elisha, uh, and it's helpful to put that in the context of where Israel is at, which is in some of their darkest days, you know. And so what we see here is, is a reminder of uh, how often um, we can be discouraged by the darkness. Even Elijah himself, you know, thought he was the last one, that it all hung on him. Um, but here we get... We get an insider view and we actually get to see what God is doing. And to some degree, um, it may just be a candle worth of light, but that's all the brighter in the darkness that is Israel at this time. So picking up, uh, notice the very first uh, thing recorded for us here involves once again the miraculous provision for a widow utilizing oil, just like we saw with Elijah. So here in chapter 4, verse 1. The wife 
of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And so one of these men in the school of the prophet has passed away and his widow comes and the debtors have come knocking at their door um, and there's no declaring bankruptcy in Israel. And so when you ran out of property to sell, uh, you would sell yourselves into servitude. And so this is putting her... <coughs> her children at risk. She has nothing to pay the debt. Being a widow, she has very few ways to earn a living, even to take care of herself, let alone to pay off the debts. And so she comes to Elisha, and she reminds uh, him of her husband's faithfulness in life, uh, as well as pointing out her current need. And Elijah responds in verse 2. Elijah said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? Take stock. Give me an inventory. And she said, <coughs> Your servant, excuse me. Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil, uh, and that word for jar uh, is a relatively small uh, vessel. Uh, so don't even think a mason jar, smaller than that. Uh, she has she has enough oil to last a few days, basically. Then he said, "Go outside and borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few." Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels and when one is full, set it aside. Okay, and so the, the premise here is gather up as many jars as you can from your neighbors and then begin to pour what you have into these other jars. I've already mentioned to you that the jar she has is relatively small, um, <clears throat> but just like in Elisha's story with the widow, thank you, Matthew, um, here... The idea is that the oil is not going to run out until she runs out of places to put it. It's intriguing to me when you look at this uh, in terms of her. She believes in the God of Elisha. That's why she comes to him. She looks at an impossible situation and she says, this is something that Elisha can do. This is something that Elisha can help with. This is something that the God of Elijah can help with. Um, and so... The plan here has a couple of facets I want to point out to you. One is, he tells her to get as many jars as she can, and then he makes clear, <coughs> I'm not talking about a few, right? He says, I'm not talking about three or four, as many as you can gather, and I mean it. Um, and so the idea here, which I think is really intriguing, is the more vessels she gathers, the greater the yield's going to be, as we'll see this provision, miraculously, of oil is going to hold out until the moment she runs out of places to put it. Okay? And so there is a correlation here between her faith and her investment in God working. The second thing I want you to notice is, although uh, this is miraculous and is recorded here for us, it's not done publicly. She's told specifically to go into her house when she has the jars, jars and shut the doors. Okay, and so um, this isn't about uh, spectacle. That's, that's not what it's about. In fact, significantly here, we should see this for what it is. This is not Elisha validating his ministry like uh, Elijah before the prophets of Baal. This isn't public. This is one woman in dire circumstances who God cares about, okay? 
And so the emphasis here um, is this repeated articulation throughout the Old Testament that God has a special desire to care for and provide for those who are least in society, those who are most subject uh, to falling through the cracks. Uh, when they're labeled in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Numbers, and throughout the prophets, uh, it's three groups in particular, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. Right, All of them, because of their circumstances, um, are subject both to injustices and the difficulties that come with poverty. And so here, through Elijah's ministry, we have an example of how God cares for widows. And it's worth pointing out that uh, this care that God has doesn't always express itself in the miraculous. Okay. In fact, when we get to the New Testament, we see that a significant part of the body of Christ, we call the church, involved uh, widows, and because of that, a significant part of the ministry of the church involved taking care of those widows. In fact, they were doing such a significant job of it that to make sure that it was handled justly, in Acts chapter 6, they appoint just in one church in Jerusalem, which is a large church, granted, but they appoint seven men to the task of overseeing this so that it's done well. When we get to the, the, uh, what we call the pastoral epistles, specifically in 1 Timothy, Paul is talking to uh, Timothy as he's overseeing this church in Ephesus and getting it set up and running. And one of the things he does is he establishes an official role for widows, for the caring of their needs. And he distinguishes between those who are qualified for such a ministry and those who are not qualified. In fact, it's in that context that we find Paul's uh, piercing words about taking care of or providing for our family when Paul says if anyone doesn't provide for their family, they are worse or behaving worse than even an unbeliever, worse than a Gentile, okay? And so one of the things that he distinguishes is that if we have older relatives in need, then we should take care of them. It's the ones who are the most destitute and with, mo with uh, the least relational support that the church should seek to take care of. Um, but that is because of the same reason that this miracle plays out here, God's heart to take care of those who are in need. And so he's, he gives her the instructions and then in verse five, she follows them. She went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons, and as she poured, they brought vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another, and then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. And so notice here, there's not just enough oil to settle um, <coughs> the uh, accounts with their creditor, uh, but also for them to uh, subsist on until her sons come of working age. Okay. Now we're introduced to another woman, and whereas the first story is about a widow, the second involves a foreigner. And so it says in verse 8, One day Elijah went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continuously passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls put up there for him, a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. 
Now, this woman's circumstances are very different, aren't they? She has a husband. She's very well-to-do. In fact, to the degree that she's quite happy any time the prophet comes through town to host him for dinner. And she pitches an idea to her husband of building an add-on to their house, uh, a guest room, if you will, so that any time he comes through, he can stay with them. Okay. And so, effectively here, uh, she recognizes the value of his ministry and supports it through her hospitality. It's very simple. But remember here, she doesn't have much in the way of needs. She's well off, she has a husband, she has a home. Um, But notice verse 11, one day he came there and turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him and he said to him, Say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. And so he wants to repay her. And the first thing he recognizes is that he can offer her um, benefits that come with his position. Now, I would suggest to you uh, that this is more of a test than anything else, because although Elijah plays a significant role in Israel. He's not necessarily respected by the armies and the royalty of Israel, is he? Um, But what he's trying to do is feel out her heart and her reasons, okay? Maybe the reason that she's seeking to take care of Elijah is for her own advantage, okay? But to her credit, notice how she responds. She says, I dwell among my own people. Basically, she says, I'm fine, thank you. I don't need anything on that account. And so he asks outright, verse 14, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. Okay, and so she's never had a child and her, uh, her husband is aging. Okay, so this is looking like a permanent condition. Verse 15, he said, call her. And when she had called her, she stood in the doorway and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. Or literally, do not get my hopes up. Okay. Although she's never had a child, she's always desired one. And this is nothing short of too good to be true. And so here, uh, as we've seen many times, a word comes to a barren woman that she's going to have a child, right? We see it with Sarah. In Genesis chapter 18, when Abram is uh, providing hospitality to strangers, quite a lot of overlap actually between this story uh, and, uh, and the one in Genesis. And those strangers happen to be God and a couple of angels, and they announce that this time next year, we will come again and you will have a son. Earlier on, we looked at uh, Samuel's miraculous birth to his mother Hannah, who was praying at the tabernacle because she was unable to conceive and God gave her a child. And so here too, this happens again. But once again, notice the difference. What is the consequence of Abraham and Sarah's miraculous pregnancy? It's Isaac, the provided son, the beginning of Israel, the, uh, the move forward in God's plan to fulfill all of his promises. What do we get out of the pregnancy that comes upon Hannah? Samuel, the prophet who anoints both King David and Saul. But what comes out of, uh, out of this reality? An unnamed child. Okay. Uh, this is not just <clears throat> God moving in the big, but once again, caring about the small. Just blessing an elderly couple 
with a late life pregnancy. And so verse 17, the woman continued, excuse me, conceived, I was guessing there as I turned the page, and she bore a son about that time the following spring as Elijah had said to her. And so the word comes true and now she has a child. Verse 18, when the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. Okay, they're an agrarian family. And so he's young in his life. His dad is working in the fields and he goes out to be with him. Verse 19, he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. And the father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon and then he died. And she went up and laid, on, uh, laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Notice the significance of what's happening here. Once again, we can find uh, some parallels with the story of Isaac. If you remember, uh, Abraham is given this son miraculously, and it's such uh, a joyful reality that he names him Isaac, laughter. But much later, um, as, as Isaac is a late teen, almost an adult, God speaks to Abraham again, and he says, that son that I gave you, your only son, the one that you love, I want you to take him to a mountain that I will specify and I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to take his life for me. In the same way here with this woman, uh, the son just comes down with some unknown and and apparently painful malady. Uh, And so in the morning he's uh, crying out because of a headache in the field and by noon he's passed away on his mother's lap. Um, Remember here, the emotional state the woman was in when Elijah made the promise. What was her response to the possibility of having a child? Don't don't get my hopes up. Don't lie to me. And here, the child dies. And so, she lays the the boy, and notice she lays him in Elijah's private room, not in her own. And then it says she went out, and then notice verse 22, she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. Now, this is striking for a couple of reasons, right? The, the first is she doesn't tell her husband. She doesn't tell her that his son is dead. She doesn't even bring it out. She just says, hey, I'm going to leave really quickly and go for the prophet. Okay. Um, in fact, he's so unconcerned about his son look at how he responds in verse 23 he says why go to him today it's neither new moon nor sabbath and she said it's okay all is well okay and so he looks at this and he goes wait normally you would go uh, visit the prophet during these high periods of Israel's religious year Um, but here it's it's out of season it's out of tune with the normal rhythm so he says why what's up and she has a second chance to tell him and she doesn't she says, everything's fine. Okay. Now, I think uh, this woman here, this unnamed Shunammite, uh, stands in here as being an example of very powerful faith. I think it's easy to put ourselves in these shoes and ask how things would have been different. And it's, it's interesting here that not only does she not despair, um, but she's set on getting in touch with Elijah. And then on top of that, notice what she tells her husband. Uh, we're going, I'm going to go see the man of God, and then I'm going to come back again. That is another verbal parallel with the story of Isaac. Okay? 
when Isaac and Abraham set out, they set out with a couple of servants, and there comes a point where Abraham says to the servants, stay here with the stuff. The boy and I will go on ahead and we'll come back to you. And it's striking when we know what the servants don't, which is that he's taking his son to kill him. And yet there's something beyond, there's something more in the story of Abraham, and it's the same here. And so she doesn't tell her husband. She gets the donkey she needs. Verse 24, she saddled the donkey, and she said to her servant, urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. In other words, as fast as we can go, pedal to the metal. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And so he sends his servant ahead because he can tell, just like the husband did, that this isn't business as usual. Something's wrong. And he rightly discerns that it has something to do with her family. And so she says how, she, he asks his servant to ask how they are all doing one at a time. And she answered at the end of verse 26, all is well. She doesn't let the servant in. She doesn't tell him anything. In fact, I think you can picture this with me, right? He's coming alongside the donkey, and she doesn't even slow the pace. She has her eyes set on Elijah. She knows that that's where she needs to go. And so she just uh, calms his fears, pushes him down. And then verse 27, when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Now, here, two things. First, the way that she behaves is a little bit uncouth. She just grabs on around his legs. Uh, and so the servant, uh, who functions a little bit like a prophetic bodyguard, is just trying to pull her away to give his master some distance. And he can see the significance of what's going on. So he just tells, her, tells him to stop. And then he says something that I think is even more significant. He doesn't know what's going on, right? We saw so many times in Elijah's life where plans are made and God lets him in on what's going on, where God basically sits down with Elijah and opens the daily planner and says, let me tell you what's on the calendar today, right? In fact, we're going to see many occasions where that plays out in Elijah's life as well, but here he's completely in the dark. This is unexpected for him. And so... Uh, so he says, the Lord has hidden it from me, verse 28. She said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Even here, she doesn't state. She just mourns in front of him. She says, you, you promised, and here I am. She doesn't give all the details, but he picks up on it in verse 29. He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. He puts together all the pieces, and he says to his servant Gehazi, run forward, take my staff with you, don't stop for nothing, not even just the uh, niceties of the day when you would see someone on the street. Wouldn't mean anything here in Seattle, but imagine you were in the south, right? Uh, move faster than all those things, and then when you get to the child, lay the staff on the child. Now, obviously, uh, we saw Moses and his staff do significant things, okay? But there's other places where we see similar things. So there's an occasion in the New Testament where Paul is working 
uh, I believe in the city of Corinth. He might be in Ephesus, but either way, he's making tents, which is his normal way, and God has been working amazingly through the ministry of Paul. People are being healed, um, and on one occasion, as he's working, he sets down uh, a sweat rag, and somebody steals it, and they're laying that on people, and the people are being healed, right? Uh, there's an occasion in Peter's ministry where it says, even those who Peter's shadow fell upon were healed of their maladies, okay? And so what this is, is effectively a point of contact, okay? Um, but, but we have to be careful here because as much as it might be uh, a point of contact or uh, a place to meet with faith, here we're dealing with a dead child, okay? It's, it's, this is not about the child's faith. There's no opportunity for that. Um, but I want you to notice that, that he here is, is operating... He's moving in this way, but notice verse 30, the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. She is tremendously motherly here, right? She wants the best for her child, nothing less. And so she says, no, that's not going to cut it. You must come with me. I'm staying here and I'll only go home if you come. And so, 31, Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him, the child has not awakened. Now, we don't know how the woman or how Elijah feels about this, um, but it does build the tension in the plot, does it? doesn't it? We start to get the significance of what's going on here. It's very similar to an occasion where uh, Jesus is contacted by a man whose child is ill and he gets delayed by running into a crowd of people and in the midst of the crowd of the people is a woman who's, been, um, who's had a flow of blood. She's been bleeding uh, and no doctor can help her and she thinks if I can just get a hold of the garment of Jesus, I'll be healed. And she does so and Jesus stops everything he's doing. And says, who touched me? I know somebody touched me because the power went out for me. And he identifies her and publicly declares her to be clean. And it's at that moment that the servant of the household comes up and says, don't bother the master anymore. The child has died. Right? It's a moment like this one. It's, it's a pressure point. It's a tension. And so the story continues on. Verse 32, when Elijah came into the house, he saw the young child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them. And he prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself upon him. The flesh of the child became warm. Once again, parallels here with the widow, uh, the widow that Elijah uh, uh, brought back her child to life. Um, similarities here, verse 35. He got up again and walked back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. And then the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Now this is miraculous. It is an answer to prayer. It's probably something very few of us will have the opportunity to uh, witness similar occasions in our own life. But I want to remind you again that this is uh, two things. One, it's just a woman who showed hospitality to the prophet. Two, I want you to remember that this child was promised to the woman. Okay. We have to watch out for, um, for concepts 
of reality that take good and evil and equalize them and see all that there is as being a tension, a battle between equal powers of good and evil, a back and forth, a yin and yang, a darkness and light. When we look at uh, the Bible, we discover that, uh, that the forces of evil, even the ones that we've brought upon the world through sin, like death itself, are not equal to God. Okay? And so one way we cannot read this story is if God does something good and then somebody without God's knowing plots against it and kills this child and now God is having to write something that went wrong. God is at work here. He's the one moving behind the scenes. He allows this child to die. He puts this woman through all the trauma of this loss. This loss that's only possible because God has blessed her. And in this occasion, he does so in a way where there's a happy ending to that story. Take Job, right? Job, uh, not because of any of his own behavior, In fact, he stands up as being one of the uh, most righteous, most exemplary people in all of the Bible Uh, because of a, um, a need, effectively, to demonstrate God's worthiness. Because the devil has an idea. He says, you know what? The only reason Job's such a great guy is because you've been so great to Job. He's not really into you, God. He's into your stuff. You've blessed him greatly. And he says, but if he didn't have it, he'd curse you in a moment. And so God allows Satan to test Job specifically by the destruction of all of his wealth and the death of all of his children. Job hears uh, uh, in rapid succession about all that he's lost. And he goes before God in worship. And Satan says, well, he still has his health. He knows that we're but flesh and blood. I bruised my rib uh, about a week and a half ago, just coughing. It was not that bad of an injury, but you would think that my life was over by the way I responded to it. I just don't handle pain well. And so uh, with Job, he loses his health. He's covered in sores, okay? And so um, now he has very little left. It's at that point that Job's friends come and they try to convince him uh, that God is punishing him for the things that he has done. And he defends his innocence and his honor and he says, I'm I'm open to those things. I don't know of anything that I've done. Um, And eventually, there's this great revelation and Job sees God for who he really is and he has this encounter with faith. But that book also ends with a happy ending, doesn't it? It doesn't change the fact that Job has lost his children, but he does have many more. God opens his wife's womb again, and he has abundant children. His, wife, uh, his wealth is restored as well as his health, okay? And so you finish the book of Job, and it's got a little bit of that lived happily ever after tone to it. But you know as well as I do many, many stories that start the same way as this one and don't end that way, Right? I think those are the hardest ones. They're the hardest because we have to trust that the resolve, the resolution, the ending will come after all things are set right. But here, what I would suggest to you is the same God who cares for this woman 
unnamed, enough not just to give her a child, but to take her through this process. Why? Okay. To develop her own relationship with God. She knows the prophet is a man of God, but here she encounters much more than she could have imagined. imagined. Just like in the modern world, death in the ancient world was permanent, irreversible. What happens here is significant. In fact, it's especially striking because just like the God who gives back Isaac and the God here who gives back this son, when we get to the New Testament, we find God's own son and and he, he goes through the death. He goes through the ringer. He bears the full burden. He's forsaken. And yet even there we learn that's not the whole story. And so this happens. He sneezes seven times. Verse 36, then he summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. So he called to her. And when she came in, she said, pick up your son. And she came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. And she picked up her son and went out. And Elijah came to Gilgal. Now you may remember that there are these schools, these prophetic schools set up all over the northern tribes. And one of them is in Gilgal. And so he gets there and there's a famine in the land. Okay. Now if you go back and you read the book of Deuteronomy, it's understandable that there's a famine during this time. It won't even be the last one we encounter tonight. Because this is one of God's disciplinary tools to gain the nation's uh, attention so that they might repent and turn back, okay? If you read in um, the tail end chapters of Deuteronomy, the last five or so, you'll see that this is part of the plan. But as is always the case, there is this group of people who are faithful and a famine is a, rel uh, a relatively broad stroke tool, right? And so they're living in the midst of this. These prophets are sitting here in a time of famine and Elijah comes to them says, the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said to his servant, set on the large pot and boil a stew for the son of the prophets. One of them went out in the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it in his lap uh, full of wild gourds and came and cut them into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there's death in the pot. And they could not eat it. And remember, everybody sitting at this table uh, has uh, a prophetic ministry, a prophetic role. And so somehow, they're in tune with the danger of this meal that sits before them. And remember, this is a time of famine. So whereas we would just say, well, just dump the pot and make another you know, pot of stew. Uh, this, uh, this is not what happens. They cry out, there's something wrong here. There's something dangerous and so Elijah said, bring the flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. So once again, a relatively innocuous solution, just like the uh, water near Jericho that was bad and was producing um, noxious crops. Uh, and uh, Elijah just makes use of some salt. Here, it's just flour that's added to the pot. Now, it is true that certain chemical compounds that are very dangerous are neutralized by other chemical compounds, but flour is not one of those usual things, right? If anything, what would we expect to happen to a stew if you add flour to it? It just gets thicker, right? That's it. 
Um, but here we see, uh, see God working through the ministry of Elijah to provide for the school of the prophets. And so verse 42, a man came from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. Okay, now remember here, the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel in the northern tribes, has kind of fallen by the wayside, right? Under the ministry of King Jeroboam, they've rejected going to the temple in Jerusalem, and he set up instead two, uh, two golden calves, two worship idols uh, at different places within the nation. So the law of the first fruits is now somewhat impossible to fulfill. You see, when, uh, when Israel first brings in their crops, there was to be an uh, a offering of gratitude made out of those first fruits, the first part of your harvest, and presented at the tabernacle, or in these days, the temple. Due to the lack of that, it's brought here to you know, the last bastion of faithfulness in Israel, which is these prophetic schools. Okay? And so it's brought not to the priests. The priests are in, uh, in the southern tribes of Judah. In the northern tribes here, they're brought to the prophet Elijah. And so he brings him uh, these things. And Elijah says, give them to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give it to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. Okay. And so once again here, we see miraculous provision for these prophets. And this, I think, provides us with a touch point that if you study the history of the church, even relatively recently, you will still discover places where God miraculously takes care of the needs of his children. David could say in the Psalms that I've never once seen the righteous go hungry. Um, probably one of the best places to uh, see this play out is in the ministry of George Mueller. Uh, George Mueller was a German Christian who later in his life set up an orphanage in Bristol, England. And he had devoted his life to discovering the power of prayer. Uh, in fact, you can get, and it's pretty hefty, uh, his own journals, which he only recorded and published so people could be encouraged by the things that God did through his prayer. And there was an occasion where he woke up and those who worked with him in the orphanage came and said, that's it. We ate the last of our food yesterday. We have no money to buy anything new, and we have no food to put on the table. And so they sat with all of the orphans around the table in the morning, and, uh, and George Mueller said, let us pray for the food. And this is the prayer that he prayed. God, thank you for the food we're about to eat. Amen. And almost instantaneously, George Mueller tells us in his journals, there was a knock at his door, and he opened the door, and a man was there, and he said, I was taking these goods to market uh, to sell them in the marketplace, but my horse has just gone lame, and they'll never make it to the market. Can you make use of them? And George Mueller, being the man of faith he was, he said, we will take them if you desire that we would have them, right? I would be bouncing off the walls going, you would not believe what just, right? But this was not unusual in George Mueller's life. Every meal was a miraculous provision. Every open door was a place uh, where he moved. And the faith of George Mueller was hard won. 
if you read from early in his journal or if you pick up a, a little YWAM biography like Rebel in Bristol, uh, you'll discover how he went about this. He was in a church very much like this one, pastoring early in his age, just being married. Uh, and uh, the way that pastors were supported in those days is that the wealthy families would rent a pew. And so you can imagine what happened over time. There was clear uh, uh, division between the poor and the wealthy in church. The best seats were reserved for the wealthy. George Mueller, reading James just like we do, saw that as being completely inappropriate for the church. And so he set up a small box, got rid of all the rental pews, set up a small box, and just said, from now on, the pastor will be fully sustained by anything put in this box. He never said anything to the congregation, he just put it out, and he learned to watch as God provided for him, and he learned dependence and prayer during that time, okay? And so, um, so here, the actual provision itself is miraculous. In fact, it's very similar to Jesus and the loaves and fishes. There's not enough food, and then as the food is passed out, there's more than is necessary. Um, but the principle is one of the fact that God is a good provider. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Chapter 5. Naaman commander of the army of the king of Syria. Okay. Now, Syria has been playing a significant role in Israel's history right now, most of the time, almost all of the time, as an enemy of Israel. Okay. So keep that in mind here. Here is uh, the general leading the troops for this enemy nation. And it says here that he was a great man with his master, that's the king of Syria, uh, and in high favor, because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. Now, notice that. Here, it attributes his victory in war, and who's the enemy on the other side? Israel, to the Lord showing him favor. Okay? I mentioned to you earlier, watching out for this division uh, between God and his enemies of some sort of equal battle. Okay. Here, again, we're reminded that God is not just the God of Israel, but the God of all the nations, and right now he's using Syria, just like the famine we just read about, as a disciplinary measure. Similarly, Isaiah tells us that God is going to raise up a king named Cyrus, and he will be his servant, right? And he will be the one who finally deals with Babylon, and he's the one who brings in the Persian Empire, and it's under the Persian Empire uh, uh, that Israel is restored to the land during the ministries of Nehemiah, Ezra, and Esther. Okay, and Isaiah, hundreds of years before the birth of Cyrus, in fact, hundreds of years before uh, Persia is even something to glance at, uh, hears, uh, hears and excuse me, names him by name because God is going to raise him up and calls him God's servant. Okay, so here is this man. God has given him victory, and so he has much respect, much wealth. Um, he's highly regarded by the king that he works for. In fact, it says he was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And let me remind you again here, the word uh, that we have here for leper, or the idea here in Hebrew of leprosy, is relatively broad. Uh, we, we could read this uh, skin condition, and we could add to that, most likely based on the context of this particular story, relatively incurable skin, skin condition, okay? And so, um, 
So this is something that's uncomfortable. It's something that probably uh, puts him at a distance from other people because most of these skin conditions were highly contagious. In Israel, all the way up to the days of Jesus, lepers, when they're in the presence of other people, have to constantly call out unclean and keep their distance, right? Um, And so here he has this one mark. Now verse 2 Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. Okay, so one of the people in his household is a prisoner of war, a little girl. Okay, verse three, she said to her mistress, that would be Naaman's wife, would that my Lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And so she says, you know, if Naaman would just come to the prophet we have in Israel, he'd be healed. He'd be cured. Verse 4, so Naaman went and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Okay. Now I want you to watch in this story because there's going to be kind of two sources of movement. One that is very high. Here it's the king of Syria, probably Ben-Hadad, because he's the primary player in this time. And one is very low, specifically this young woman who is a prisoner of war and a servant in his house, and then we'll see another group of servants later. Okay? The tension between the way they see life is important to the story. And so here uh, the king of Syria says, go ahead, and I'm going to send a letter to the king of Israel. I'm going to make this official. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing, okay? All of these are manifestations of Naaman's wealth, right? He goes ready to make a significant offering so that he can be healed. And so he brought, hand in his hand, the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I've sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Okay? And so notice here what the king of Syria assumes. He, ass- he assumes the best way to go about this is through political channels. And so he reaches out and he says, hey, the reason my general is passing through your land is because he wants to make use of your prophet and be healed. But as we know, The king is not on good terms with Elijah, Uh, and so when the king of Israel, verse 7, read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. And so he confesses his own impotence here, and then he suspects that this is a plot. He says, This is just so Syria has a new reason to attack me. This will not be the last time where the king just decries that he can't do anything about the problems that are brought to him. Okay. But when Elijah, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. He says, Why are you mourning as if this is bad news? Just send him to me. Right? That's who he's looking for anyways. God is capable of taking care of this issue. And notice here, there is an evangelistic opportunity. There are many occasions in the Old Testament uh, where foreigners encounter the God of Israel. Uh, And Naaman serves as one of those. And so here... Elijah sends specifically for Naaman. So verse 9, Naaman came with his horses and chariots. Okay. Now, why is he passing through Israel with horses and chariots? This isn't a raid, 
right? He is in hostile territory, but we shouldn't assume that he's in danger of being assassinated. What is this? It's for show. Okay, this is how Naaman travels everywhere with a posse that reflects his position in life. This is his motorcade, right? And so he's moving along in this way, and he's expecting here to show up and impress Elijah the prophet. And so he gets to the door, verse 10, and Elijah sent a messenger to him. Elijah doesn't even come out and greet him. He takes one of his servants and he says, here, he, he gives him a dispatch and he sends him out. He says, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Okay. And so he doesn't meet him. There's no handshake. There's no face to face. He just sends a message through the servant and the servant passes on these instructions that if he just dunks himself in the Jordan River seven times, uh, then he will be made clean. But, verse 11, Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out. Okay, now notice two things. First, with that word surely, Naaman has a picture in mind of how this is all going to go down. To his credit, he's traveled a long distance and he's expecting to be healed, right? And so he has a picture of what it's going to look, out, look like and here's what it says. He said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Okay. He expects ceremony. He expects show. And then he adds here, he says, verse 12, are not Abana and Phapar, excuse me, Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so not only is it offended by the absence of the prophet, but also the instructions involving the Jordan River, which he sees as, uh, as dirty uh, and, and small in comparison to these great rivers in his home capital in Damascus. So he turned and went away in a rage. He gives up. It reminds me of a story. Um, the story involves uh, Alexander like Alexander the Great, the great general, um, and a philosopher, who if I remember right is Demosthenes, but I could be wrong. But either way, Alexander wanted a great life, had big ambitions, but they hadn't been targeted yet. And he was greatly impressed by this one philosopher. And so he came to him and he said, I want to be your disciple. I want to follow you. I want to learn everything you have to offer. And I, once again, I believe it's Demosthenes. He said, all right. I want you to carry these two fish. And he handed him two fish out of a bucket and put them in Alexander's hands. And Alexander just exploded and he threw the fish to the ground. He said, I don't understand. I offered you everything and you give me two fish? And as he walked away, the, uh, the philosopher was heard to say, such ambition spoiled by a pair of fish. Right? The, the idea is that uh, the way that Alexander came was with greatness and not with humility. If he couldn't understand it, he didn't want it. And one of the great thoughts of the Greek philosophers, of course, was you don't know anything until you know how little you know. He didn't come as a student. He came as an inspiring expert. He came ready to be the best. Naaman, in the same way, comes here, and he expects it to be uh, pomp and circumstance. He doesn't know that the prophets of Israel won't take pay, and so he comes chock full to impress the prophet and here uh, not getting a personal touch 
or a personal counsel and just instruction that leads him to the Jordan River, he gives up. But notice verse 13, his servants came near and said to him, Second time here, the right counsel, the right answer comes not from the top, but from below, from the servants. He came to them and he said, My father, is it a great word the prophet has spoken to you? Will you not do it? He actually said to you, wash and be clean. And so there's two things here. He, he says, first off, uh, he says, look, if he told you to climb the biggest mountain in the area, you would have done it. Why throw a fit about just washing in a river? And the second thing he says here is, didn't you hear what he said? If you do this, you will be clean, right? They remind him of the words of the prophet. But I want you to notice that for the second time here, this great, honorable, well-respected, wealthy man has had to follow the advice and the input of the lowest. The Bible repeats continuously that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. If Naaman is going to come before the God of Israel, he might as well leave his wealth and his reputation at home. And so he has to come here. Uh, and I even get the idea here that the reason the Jordan is chosen for Naaman, it's not because it has any sort of healing powers, is it? It's because he knows it will be offensive to him. Okay? He has to stoop down. He has to kneel uh, to enter in and be healed. But, verse 14, he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And so here his skin is not just made healthy, but almost like it's made new. But there's a second thing here. Notice here, Naaman's flesh is made like that of a little child. That reflects the whole posture of how he's had to do this. Right? Just taking input, just obedience with nothing to show or bring. In fact, there is no good reason, is there, for Elijah to have done this for Naaman. Naaman, the general of an enemy army. Okay? He has a need, and God meets that need. Jesus says the same thing about the kingdom of God, that we can only enter it if we become like children ourselves. And that means simply... It means in simple faith. It means with nothing to offer and everything to gain. It means in dependence, as a child always is. And so he learns that lesson in verse 15. He returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but Israel. Hear that for what it is, okay? He makes two great leaps there. One, he recognizes the superiority of the God of Israel, but more importantly, he denies the polytheism of basically the entire world outside of Israel. He doesn't just see uh, Israel's God as a contender for the best of all the gods. He says, now I know there's only one, and I've met him, right? And he healed me. He says, accept now a present from your servant. He's not offering to pay anymore, but he still wants to reward him for the part that he's played. But he said, as the Lord lives before uh, whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mules, uh, a load of earth from now on. Your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. And so he takes home a religious souvenir some of the soil of Israel, to build his own altar because he wants to continue to worship the God of Israel back in his own place. And there's some tension in that, isn't there? Because his own place is as a general of an army of Syria, right? But he says, I'm not going to worship the gods of my people anymore. I want to bring soil. I want to worship your God. 
Verse 18, in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon, that's a god in Syria, to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this manner. He says, I'm not going to worship my gods anymore, but part of my role, part of my office involves going into the temple of Rimmon and participating in that worship. And he basically says, uh, let there be forgiveness for me in this. And there's some tension here. Like there's some of us who, who would like to say, come on, man, you can be a better witness than that. Draw a line, die for the Lord who just saved your life. But that's not how Elijah responds. He says to him, verse 19, go in peace. I think it's worth recognizing here a couple of things. First off, if we're going to talk about faithful witness, it barely exists in Israel. Okay? One of the great things I love about God throughout the scriptures is that he meets us where we're at. Okay. You may be cutting yourself infested with demons in the cemetery. And Jesus has no problem walking into the place, meeting you right there. He doesn't say, hey, why don't you meet me on the other side of town where it's safer? And even there, when he does these works, look at the men that are Peter and James and John. Look at Paul. It, their life isn't, isn't perfect from that point on. David is a man after God's own heart, but there's a lot of other things in David's heart too that it takes a whole lifetime to work out. God is always gracious in that way. And what I love here is that Elijah seems to follow the promise that the prophets make about the ministry of Jesus, that he won't break a bruised reed, that he won't snuff out a smoldering flax. Okay? This faith is real, it's true, it's living, and it's also just beginning. I was teaching uh, this week on the Ethiopian eunuch. It's one of my favorite stories in all the Bible, but it's profound for the same reason. Because here's a man who is a seeker. He's gone all the way to Jerusalem to know the God of Israel. He gets there, and because he's a eunuch, he can't enter in. And at his own cost, and a tremendous expression of his own wealth, he purchases a private copy of the scroll of Isaiah. And he's reading it on the way home. And he's wrestling with this reality because late in the book of Isaiah, God makes a promise to the eunuch. He says, not just I'll let you in my house. He says, I'm going to make you a pillar in my house. I'm going to give you a name that will last. And then as he's reading, he moves a little bit forward and he sees that the linchpin of all of these promises is in Isaiah 53, this coming servant. And it's at that point that God sends by the, uh, by the message of the Holy Spirit, Philip, all the way into the wilderness to just happened to run into this chariot and he says do you understand what you're reading and he says how can I unless someone teaches me and so he reads the passage and it's Isaiah 53 it's the crucifixion of Jesus laid out 500 years in advance and beginning there Philip explains the gospel and the guy becomes a Christian he feels the tension of that division that he felt with the God of Israel and he says is there anything to permit me from being baptized right the Old Testament says because because I have been castrated, I'm not allowed to worship God, but what about as a Christian? And he says, there's some water, let's get it done. But right there, a man who's met Jesus today, who only has the scroll of Isaiah, who at this time is going back to a country that has a total of one Christian in it when he crosses the border, and it's him. And Philip is just carried away. The Ethiopian comes out of the water, and he's totally alone, and he goes his way rejoicing. Do you ever think about that and go, where's the follow-up plan? Where's the discipleship, right? God meets us where we're at, and he tells long and faithful stories. The same God that heals Naaman is going to be there for the rest of Naaman's life. And Elijah understands that. 
And so he doesn't lay a heavy burden on him. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't put out this newfound faith, but he trusts that this is the beginning. And so he says, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, verse 20, Gehazi, the servant of Elijah, the man of God, said, See, my master spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I'll run after him and get something from him. Now, I want you to notice here uh, that we're watching two trajectories. The one that we've already seen is amazing, right? Naaman, the general of an enemy of Israel who has, you know, basically been wailing on Israel successfully for years, made a name out of it, surrenders to the God of Israel. But the other is Gehazi, who's right in the center of the action, a servant of Elijah, and he also has a trajectory. And they're moving in opposite directions. And so he looks at this, he saw all the wealth that was available, he sees his master turn it down, and he basically says, what a missed opportunity. And so he comes up with his plan, and his plan here is verse 21, he followed Naaman. When Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? He said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, there's just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Two young men of the sons of the prophets, please to give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. Okay, now this is a lot less than Naaman brought. It's a small thing. It's two changes of clothing and a talent of silver instead of ten talents of silver. Okay, and he makes up a story. And he says, right after you left, two prophets in great need showed up at the house. And Elijah went, okay, here's a place where we could use some help. Right? And so he lays out this story. In verse 23, Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing. Okay. Once again, notice how significant the amount of silver that is. Okay. He doesn't just put it in his pocket. It's two separate bags. It's a heavy weight of silver uh, and two changes of clothing. Uh, and laid them on two of his servants and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. And so here, he takes this quietly, he takes it in his master's name, he makes up a story to do so, it's motivated clearly and obviously by greed, and he just hides it in his house, but the story doesn't end there. Verse 25, he went in and stood before his master, and Elijah said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? Once again here, we see Elijah reflecting God, right? He knows. We're going to find out he knows. He's not asking because he's curious. He gives an opportunity for confession. And he said, your servant went nowhere, which is about the most suspicious thing that could come out of someone's mouth, right? But he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from the chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? You see, he sees to the very depth of Gehazi's heart here. He recognizes he only took as much as he thought he could get away with. But if he could have, he would have taken everything. Therefore, verse 27, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. And so there's an opposite trajectory here. Someone who should know better. And and to some degree, Gehazi stands in for Israel as a whole right now, right? Here Naaman comes and encounters and is uh, made clean by the same God who makes the same promises to Israel. The end of their famine. The end of the warfare. The end of their health problems. The end of their barrenness. All of it is available if they would only come to their Lord and they do not. And as we can see here, one of the reasons is because of idolatry. 
And maybe it's not the gods of the lands around him. Maybe it's a much more modern god, one we relate with, the god of wealth, right? And so because of that, he now bears the same skin condition that Naaman had. Now, we should see this for what it is, an act of discipline and not of judgment. Gehazi doesn't just disappear here. Uh, Elijah doesn't disown him. God doesn't seem to either. In fact, he still has a part to play in the story. Um, but he does have this constant and embodied reminder um, of the, the danger of his own decision. Let's continue on here. Verse 6, Now the sons of the prophet said to Elijah, See, the place where we dwell is under your charge, is too small for us. Read that for what it is, right? This prophetic movement, this final bastion of faithfulness in Israel, it's growing. This is good news. And so they come and they say, hey, the place where we're all working and living, uh, it's, we've outgrown it. And so he says, verse 2, let us go to the Jordan and each of us there get a log and let us make a place to go and dwell there. And he answered, go. Then one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. He answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, alas, my master, it was borrowed. Okay, and so get the tension here. Remember, uh, these prophets are not making a living by this. Okay? Even if they have jobs outside of this, they clearly have families outside of the school. Uh, they are giving up a significant part of their time to be and participate in this. Okay? And so he doesn't have an ax to his own name. He borrows one from a neighbor and he brings it out and as sometimes happens, the head of the ax comes loose and it falls into the Jordan River. And so the concern here is an important one. It's that he has a debt he cannot pay, right? Once again, it's an issue of need. And the man of God said, where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float, okay? Once again, the implementations are normal, but the happening that comes with it is abnormal, okay? You may remember uh, taking uh, soap shavings in the bathtub and getting a paper clip to float, right? That's about the best we can do. But an iron axe head is something different, uh, and yet here, here this is done, and once again, it's done to take care of a need, okay? And he said, take it up, so he reached out his hand and took it. And I don't know why, but every time I read that story, especially the last sentence, take it up, reach out his hand and took it, I always think of Willy Wonka. I, I don't know, it's just that scene, just reach out, take it, touch it, taste it, right? It, it's, it, there is a little bit of wonder in this story, these people have seen everything from Elijah. Why does he complain to Elijah about the axe going missing? Because he thinks something can be done. But did he imagine, you know, uh, basically a Yoda-like trick? Of course not. Verse 8, once, okay, notice the language there. It doesn't say on the next day, right? Remember, we're dealing with a catalog that spans years and years, and the author is making clear a couple of things. One, God is still at work in Israel, even though Israel doesn't know it. Um, and two, this is not an everyday occurrence, okay? So once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, remember, we just learned about Naaman the general becoming a convert, and that was during a time of at least fragile peace, right? Where the king of Syria could write to the king of Israel, but now we've moved forward. That's not what's going on. And so he takes counsel with his servants saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. Okay, war room strategies. Here, this is where we're going to set up camp. But, verse 9, the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are going down there. Okay. And so 
Elijah hears from the Lord that this is happening, where they're going to be set up, and he warns the king. And the king of Israel sent to the place (coughs) about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. Okay, notice the latotes there. Okay, more than once or twice means a lot. Okay, it's it's saying it in in the small to make a point about something big. In other words, constantly in his war room, the king of Syria is making private plans, and they're constantly foiled. Okay, and so he expects, like we would in that situation, that there's a leak. Okay, that there's an informant in his own camp. So verse 11, the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? He says, where's the mole? Who's doing this? Verse 12, one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king, but Elijah, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Okay. Now, once again, I assume he's not making war plans in his bedroom, but the bedroom stands in here for being the most intimate and private place. He's basically saying, Elijah hears what you whisper in your wife's ear, right? That's the problem, is that God is revealing these things to the prophet. And so, verse 13, he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. Now, let's recognize that that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? It doesn't seem any more likely that if he's going to come up with a plan to trap Elijah that it's going to be more successful than his invasions. But he's got a problem, and this is his normal way of dealing with things. And so uh, he finds out that he's in Dothan. Verse 14, he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and there came by night and surrounded the city. Okay, and so he brings a significant army with him, and in the middle of the night, while nobody's paying attention, he surrounds the city. Okay, so recognize uh, the possibilities here. The sun's going to come up, and he's going to say to those in the city, surrender Elijah, or we're going to burn the place to the ground. That's the plan, okay? But, verse 15, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city, and the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with him. Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. Okay, and so recognize here, the idea is that this army has the city surrounded, but that army is surrounded by an angelic army, right? And apparently Elijah is totally spiritually in tune with this. He sees it, he knows it, he's heard it, whatever. His servant is freaking out and he graciously prays that he'd be able to see as well. In fact, this whole story plays uh, with, with hearing and seeing, okay? And so he hears what the king says in private and now he sees what his servant can't see and then notice what happens next. Uh, And so verse 18, when the Syrians came down against him, Elijah prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elijah. And so now the army doesn't see anything at all, right? They're stuck blind, struck blind. In fact, they're so confused by this blindness uh, that verse 19, Elijah said to them, the army, this isn't the way, and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. It reads like a Jedi mind trick, doesn't it? 
he just speaks to them and he says, you're not even in the right place. I know you're looking for the prophet. I'll take you to him, okay? And so here is Elijah leading an entire army, feeling their way down the road, and he leads them to the capital city, to Samaria. Verse 20, as soon as they entered Samaria, Elijah said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord (coughs) opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Okay, now recognize why that is significant. Where does the king of Israel keep his armies? Okay, they brought a lot of soldiers to surround the little town of Dothan. Okay, but now they're in the capital city. This is not a safe place for them to be. Okay, uh, so they take off the blindfolds here, the God-given blindfolds, and they're in a very difficult situation. In fact, verse 21, as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? To him, remember, Syria is warring with Israel. That's the whole point. And here's a great mass of their army surrounded in the capital city, wrapped up with a bow and brought by Elijah. And he says, should I just put him to death? In verse 22, he answered, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you've taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Okay. He says, look, if you were at war and the army surrendered, you wouldn't just put them to death, right? The other armies around Israel would, but Israel played by different rules, And so he says, why then here, when they've been presented to you, when they're not attacking you at all, when they're in a place, he says, instead, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink (coughs) and go back to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they'd eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Okay, and so it becomes an act of clemency that spreads to you know, the front lines of the war, and for at least a time, peace is brought again. Okay. All right, let's finish off this chapter. Um, I was really hoping to get to chapter 7. That's one of my favorite chapters, but that's why I don't want to rush it. So verse 24. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. Okay. So this is a later time. The peace is over again. Syria is once again on the attack, and this time they spare no soldiers. They bring the whole force. And there was a great famine in Samaria. Okay. Now this is not a famine because of rain. This is a famine because of the surrounding army. Nothing is getting in and out. Okay. Uh, the way in the ancient Middle East cities were set up, uh, you would live in the town center and your fields would be on the outside, right? That's much safer in the ancient world uh, than living on a farm and not having, you know, uh, not having another neighbor for acres. If you read In Cold Blood, that probably makes total sense, okay? Uh, It's one of the things that I love living about in a city. It may be a more dangerous place, but my neighbors can hear me scream, okay? The principle's the same. So they live in the city, but when they retreat to the city, they cut themselves off from all of their fields. And so the army's plan here, the Syrians, is just to wait them out until they surrender or starve to death. Okay. That's what's going on here. Okay, and so there's a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now, just, uh, there's no getting around the fact that a donkey's head is not good eats. Okay. Uh, but that second idea of, uh, of dove's dung, we're pretty sure that's a reference to a very small pea pod type plant. Okay. The idea there is of it being very little food, not that they've resorted to eating manure. Um, but nonetheless here, 
uh, a donkey is an unclean animal, not to be eaten at all. It's all they have left. In fact, we're going to find out in a minute things are even worse. Uh, the basic idea is, is uh, you know, just like after the Great Depression, there, there's just a huge inflation because things have gotten so bad. Verse 26, now as the king of Israel <coughs> was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? He knows whatever this <coughs> woman is going to ask, he doesn't have anything in his pantry either. He says, oh, sure, I'll just go out to the vineyard and I'll get you something, right? Um, but once again, notice that he is incapable of meeting the needs that's presented to him. And then we find out that the need is a terrible one. Verse 28, the king answered her, what is your trouble? And she answered, this woman said to me, give me your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him, and on the next day I said to her, give to your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son. Okay, now, as we've talked about before, the king operates as the supreme court of Israel, and so here is a case that can't be solved. This woman is looking for justice, but how horrible the justice. Doesn't matter which way he sides here, it's an impossible conclusion, and uh, it's no surprise here that it seems very parallel to the highlight of Solomon's wisdom, right? Where there's two women and one has accidentally killed her child in the night and now both the women claim the surviving child as their own, right? But this is much more horrendous. It's much more horrible. This is a true um, Gordian knot, an unsolvable problem, okay? Um, and so it's horrible here in verse 30. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes now as he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. He's in a period of mourning. He's out of options. Uh, this is where things are at. And he said, may God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elijah, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Once again, he blames here not his own behavior, not following in his father's footstep, not his own disobedience to God, but the power of the prophet. And if he can just kill him, everything is going to be fine. Verse 32, Elijah was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elijah said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? Okay, so get the circumstances here. All of the um, relational leaders, the elders, all the heads of their families are gathered in Elijah's house to figure out what's going on. And then he says you should know that the king's just sent an assassin to kill me. And he says he's following right afterwards because he wants to see me dead. And so the plan, he basically says, in just a minute when you hear a knock at the door, push the door through and pin him against the external wall, right? And then I'll have this conversation with the king. Just like it was with the Syrians, there's no surprising Elijah, okay? And so, verse 33, while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, the trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer okay and so tonight we get the privilege to end on a cliffhanger right uh, here Elijah is no longer threatened but Syria is surrounded and starving uh, and the question is what is God going to do and remember again two things one the, the king who's sitting on the throne here being the uh, grandson of Ahab we're expecting the worst for and two 
Israel, in, in terms of the ten northern tribes, uh, have forsaken the Lord so wholeheartedly, there's also been warnings of their destruction. And so it's appropriate for us to ask tonight, you know, is this the end of the Cape Crusader? It's that type of a cliffhanger. It's, the question is not about if God is going to protect Elijah. It's will he spare rebellious Israel? And we'll pick up there next week. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would produce in us a heart like Naaman and a heart like Elijah, that we would come in humility we wouldn't seek to bargain with you. We would just present our needs and look to you to meet them. I pray that we would be like the Shunammite woman who knows that you can do the impossible and expresses that dependence, Lord, uh, in, in just beelining for you. Lord, if we learn anything in, in the book of Second Kings tonight, it's that uh, you care about our needs. Like Jesus said, not even a sparrow falls to the ground without God knowing. And aren't we of more value than many sparrows? Do not fear, little flock, Jesus said, for your Father knows your needs before you ask them. I pray, God, that we would develop that simple, dependent faith. That we would grow in our trust in you. And that we would know, even in the worst of circumstances, um, that our God is greater, that, like Jesus said, we can rejoice because our Jesus has overcome the world. And so I ask, Lord, that we would just grow in that, and even if, even if that growth comes with difficulty, if it comes with God-ordained challenges, I pray that you would teach us. Even if it's our pride, Lord, that hinders us from a greater walk with you, a better knowledge of you, I pray, like Naaman, you would confront us in that and bring us to our knees, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you do that uh, because it's when we're on our knees that you can reach down and pick us up and even pull us into your arms and your embrace. Lord, we thank you that you give grace to the humble. So make us a humble people in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.